0: hello and welcome to jeff's midweek bible study a verse-by-verse teaching through the bible with pastor jeff Lassane. we hope this podcast encourages your faith and now here's pastor jeff Welcome to the podcast, friends, and let me begin by encouraging you to please continue praying for Israel. These are definitely crazy times, and we're seeing Bible prophecy unfolding before our very eyes, so let me encourage you to keep watching and keep on praying. So recently, my wife and I were driving around a neighboring city, and we noticed one of those tall, inflatable men with those floppy arms waving all around in the air, you know, that's intended to draw people's attention to the business. It was bright red and about 20 feet tall. I jokingly said to my wife, we should get one of those to put out in front of the church on Sunday mornings. And then I had a sobering thought. Somewhere out there, there's actually probably a church that has one of those out in front of their church. You know, this past spring, when I was on Facebook in the weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, I noticed several church ads inviting people to attend their services. These were both new and established churches. I'm sure you saw the same thing in your area. And what I noticed here was I would say that probably about 80% of those Facebook church ads sounded something like this. This coming Easter, we invite you to attend the you know, whatever, ABC Community Church. We'll have an Easter egg hunt for the kids, along with balloons, face painting, food trucks, and special music, something for the whole family. Service time begins at 10 a.m. What was noticeably absent from many of those ads was any mention of worshiping Jesus or celebrating his resurrection. In fact, on one of those Facebook ads, some lady replied in the comments and said, you probably also meant to say that there was going to be worship and a sermon. And I thought to myself, good for you, lady. A few hours later, I happened to see that same church ad on Facebook, and her comment had been deleted from the page. Ouch, I guess the truth hurts. Fortunately, some church ads were inviting people to come and worship Jesus and to celebrate his resurrection at Easter. Here's the reality. Whatever you do to bring people into your church is what you'll have to continue doing in order to keep them there. So if you get people to visit your church because you're offering entertainment and to come and have a good time, have fun, then you're going to have to keep entertaining them or they won't come back. Now don't get me wrong, we should be inviting people to church on a regular basis, but make no mistake about it. The church exists to exalt the Lord and to build up God's people through worship, fellowship, and the faithful teaching of God's word. And in the words of the great hymn, all other ground is sinking sand. Someone recently posted on Twitter, after the rapture, don't be surprised to find many prisons half empty and some churches half full. Now imagine being a pastor or a spiritual leader in a church and receiving a letter from Jesus telling you what he thinks of your church. I don't care how much you seek to honor God in everything. It would be an intimidating prospect. Like a few years ago when I got a letter from the IRS, never happened to me before. I opened it up. I was quite surprised to read that I was being audited for my charitable giving from the previous year. I happened to know a Christian brother who had retired from the IRS, so I reached out to him for any advice that he might have. His first question was, did you do anything wrong? I said, absolutely not. So he smiled and said, then there's nothing to worry about. Just give them copies of all your tithe and donation receipts and you should be fine." So I did, and a month later I received another letter from the IRS stating that everything was in order and that I could consider that audit closed. But what if Jesus audited our church spiritually or our spiritual life individually? As we return to our series in Revelation, we come now to chapter 2 and to the beginning of the second main section. Back in chapter 1 and verse 19, we discovered that Revelation has its own natural outline presented to us. Jesus had instructed John to write down, first of all, the things which you have seen past in the past. That's recorded in chapter 1. Next, John was to write down the things which are in the present, and that brings us to chapters 2 and 3, the letters of Jesus to the seven churches. And then when we get to chapter 4 and on through the rest of Revelation, we'll be looking at the things which will take place after this, looking ahead to what lies in the future. Before the Apostle John's banishment to the island of Patmos, he had been living in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. There were seven main cities in that region and seven main churches, all of which John was apparently overseeing spiritually as an apostle. Along with Ephesus, the largest and the main one, there were also churches in the cities of Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were now seven literal churches in seven literal cities. So heading into chapters 2 and 3, we'll be looking at seven letters to seven churches, which is my message title, and this will be part one. In the New Testament, there's about 30 different local churches that are mentioned or identified, but the focus is now on these seven and for the record, the entire book of Revelation was written to these seven churches. Remember what we read back in Revelation 1-4, that this book was written by John and then sent to the seven churches in Asia. So everything in Revelation was written to them. But with that said, we, know, we now see that each of these seven churches also received personal, specific evaluation from the Lord about their ministry. And along with that, and on a broader level, these churches represent various eras in church history over the past 2,000 years. For example, Ephesus, the first church, represents the first century church, which had started out on fire for the Lord, but was slowly losing some of its passion and zeal. The seventh and final church, Laodicea, represents the church of the last days, oftentimes lukewarm, struggling with compromise and carnality. But with that, we also find that each of these seven churches are in every age of church history. In other words, there's always going to be a persecuted church like the one at Smyrna, and there's always going to be on fire and faithful churches like the one at Philadelphia. Finally, and most importantly to each of us, is the personal application. These letters not only describe the condition of various churches, but the condition of various believers as well. Hey, listen, we're either on fire for the Lord, or we have become lukewarm in our faith, or for some, their faith has gone cold. And so as we make our way through these seven letters to seven churches, we need to ask ourselves, what might Jesus want to say to me as a believer? That's why Jesus says at the end of each letter, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Churches are made up of people, not buildings, buildings buildings don't have ears to hear, but we as God's people do. There's so much personal application for each one of us, and so we must invite the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts as we walk through these letters. Most of us are interested in what Revelation has to say about the future, but first God wants to speak to us about the present and about our spiritual condition. Someone wrote that if Paul were alive today to see the church in America right now, we would be getting a letter. That's funny, and yet, well, it's sadly true. Now, while we're on the subject of church, let me also say a word about the alarming trend of far too many Christians not attending church. It seems to me that after COVID closed down most churches for a period of time, many believers decided that they didn't need to go back after the churches reopened. They either got used to watching church at home on television, or else they just got used to skipping church altogether. Too often, the response sounds something like, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Technically, that's true, but technically, it's also true that you don't have to live with your spouse in order to be married. But try living apart from your spouse for a while, and then watch what that will do to your marriage. Married couples need to be together, and so does the family of God. Not to mention that as parents, we're leading our children to church. Otherwise, pay careful attention. If church becomes optional to you now, it will become unnecessary to your children later. I've heard others using stronger words, saying something along the lines of, "Well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Be very careful there, because the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus loves the church. He gave his life for her, and he's coming back soon to take his bride, his church, up to heaven to be with him. Imagine telling your best friend, you know, I really love you, but I can't stand your spouse. How long do you think they'll continue being your best friend? A different group of Christians will say, well, the church hurt me, and that's why I haven't gone back. Hey, I'm genuinely sorry if the church hurt you. I truly am. But as believers, we need to remember, we're not following people. We're following Jesus. Please take note that the other 11 disciples didn't stop following Jesus because of what Judas Iscariot did. Keep your faith in Christ and not in other people. Now, coming back here to the seven churches, we're going to see that There's a series of steps, a process by which our Lord evaluates each of these churches, and it basically follows this pattern. Number one, which church is it? Jesus always begins each letter by identifying the city where the church resides. Then he goes to uh, commendation. He's able to commend most of the churches, not all of them, but most of them, and he encourages them to persevere in what they're doing correctly. Thirdly, comes the complaint or the concern, and Jesus definitely has words of criticism for most of these churches, not all, but most, and he warns them about what they're doing wrong. Before Christ judges the world, as we'll read in Revelation 6-20, through he must judge his church and his own people. Remember what we read in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. Fourthly, comes the command or the correction. Jesus tells the churches what they must do to get right and then how to stay right. Finally, he brings words of comfort, offering genuine believers in each church words of comfort and blessing towards the future. So then, what types of things was the church doing or not doing that would cause Jesus to commend or to criticize the church? Let's begin to explore that answer here in Uh, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be picking up in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is the first of Christ's seven letters, and it's written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. The word angel can be translated as angel or messenger. So the question is whether this was uh, written to a heavenly representative, an angel, or written to the earthly representative, a minister over the church. Well, angels are not overseers of Christ's churches, but pastors and ministers are entrusted to lead their congregations. So it seems fairly certain that these letters were addressed to the spiritual leader over each of those churches. This first letter then was written and sent to the church at Ephesus, so let's talk about that city and that church for just a few moments. Each of the churches that received a letter from Jesus had background information that tied into particular words that Jesus had for them. So let's begin with some facts, starting with the fact that the church at Ephesus is the only church in the New Testament to receive letters from two different apostles, Paul wrote to this church during his imprisonment in Rome, and that epistle is known as Ephesians. Here now in Revelation 2, John writes to the same church from his Roman imprisonment on Patmos about 35 years after Paul. We don't know who the pastor or leader was at the church in Ephesus when John's letter arrived there at the end of the first century. Now, when John was arrested and banished uh, by the Romans to the island of Patmos, he had been the spiritual leader over Asia Minor, Western Asia Minor, those seven churches. And traditionally, he has been identified as the pastor over the church in Ephesus where he was living. So it seems that whoever had been assisting John at that time would have presumably taken over the main leadership role once he was sent to the island of Patmos, which leads us into addressing the commonly asked question, why was Ephesus the first church to be addressed in these letters? Probably for several reasons, beginning with the fact that Ephesus was the key city and the key church in that area. The other six churches in that region have been birthed out of the main church work in Ephesus. It was also the church closest in location to John on the island of Patmos, about 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. Also, those seven cities formed a postal route around that area. If you look in your Bible maps in the back of your Bible, you see that they form sort of an oval, circular postal route. And Ephesus, being on the western coast, would receive all incoming communications and letters that arrived there first at the main harbor. In fact, that harbor there close to Ephesus was known as the gateway to Asia. So letters, communication, and all that would come in through the port into Ephesus, and then if it needed to be delivered to other cities, it would be on that circular postal route, moving north, going around to the east, then to the south, and coming back around towards Ephesus. You can see that on your map. Here in the last part of verse 1, Jesus identifies himself as he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks. This tells those believers, and us as well, two important things. For one, this is the same description of Jesus from chapter 1, so there's no mistaking the fact that this is the same glorified Lord in heaven speaking to them now. Secondly, it reminds them and us that Jesus walks in the midst of his churches. Once again, for those Christians who say they're not into going to church, we need to remind them that Jesus is into going to church, and he walks in the midst of his churches. By the time we get to the seventh and final church at Laodicea, Jesus is standing outside the church, knocking on the door, and asking them to invite him back in. Jesus goes on to say, I know your works, your labor, and your patience. It's an important reminder that Jesus always knows what's going on in the church, in the individual lives of believers, in the world, and so forth. Jesus is omniscient, which means all-knowing. Even when we pray, the Lord already knows what we have need of before we even ask. And what Jesus already knows about the church of Ephesus is that they were very orthodox. They were doing the right things, they were remaining patient in the midst of their suffering and persecution, and they were doctrinally sound while not tolerating evil. In fact, they tested those who claimed to be apostles or spiritual leaders, and they found that those who were wolves in sheep's clothing, they exposed them as liars. They were doing all of those things without becoming weary. That's quite a recommendation, quite a commendation. One of the ways that the Ephesian church excelled in their doctrine and discernment in verse 6, and Jesus commended them for it, is that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hated. In fact, twice in these seven letters from Jesus to these first century churches, Jesus refers to them. So, who were the Nicolaitans? Well, according to several early church leaders and writers like Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Eusebius, the Nicolaitans were a group of apostates who followed a man named Nicholas. The same Nicholas, sad to say, who was selected as one of the deacons in the early church that we read about in Acts chapter 6. Along with six other men, Nicholas was appointed by the church to help the apostles with overseeing daily matters so that those apostles could then focus on prayer and the word of God. Now, on the high end of those selections was Stephen, whose bold witness made him the first martyr of the early church. But on the low end of those selections was Nicholas, who ended up becoming a heretic, His followers then became known as Nicolaitans, a term that means to conquer the people. One early church writer named Clement described them as, and I quote, "...abandoning themselves to pleasure like wild goats." All of their ungodly and unbiblical practices in the name of religion led Jesus to declare that he hated their deeds, and the church at Ephesus also hated their practices." But in verse 4, in spite of all their good, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Loose paraphrase, you no longer love me like you once did in the beginning. This was an impressive church, loaded with good works and sound doctrine, but Jesus always looks at the heart, and what he saw beneath those outward works was a loveless church. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, we can possess the language of angels, or the gift of prophecy, or the faith to move mountains, or the courage to give our bodies to be burned. But if we don't have love at the center of it all, then none of it amounts to anything. Notice with me in verse 4 that they had not lost their first love, but Jesus says, you have left your first love. A husband might say to his wife, I've lost my jacket. And the wife might respond, you didn't lose your jacket. You left it at the restaurant where we had dinner last night. But here in Ephesus, this was no accident. This was neglect. They had neglected to nurture their personal relationship with Jesus. Kind of like Martha knocking herself out in the kitchen, she simply failed to spend time with Jesus in the living room. Neglect probably creates more problems in our lives than any other single failure. Neglecting our marriage. Neglecting our health neglecting our family all of it will lead to serious problems and neglecting Jesus will lead to spiritual ruin in fact Jesus warns them at the end of verse 5 get back to your first love relationship with me or else I will remove your lampstand as we already learned the lampstand represents the church and so Jesus was telling them if your spiritual love your light goes out then so will your church The church at Ephesus had great reputation and a rich history of fruitful ministry. Going back to Ephesians 1.15, three decades earlier, Paul had commended this church for their faith and their love. But in spite of Christ's high praise here for their sound doctrine and good works, Jesus was calling them out for their loveless hearts. The thing about sound doctrine and good works is while they are tremendously important, if we're not careful, they can lead to pride, and cold-heartedness. As Warren Wiersbe used to say, theology is not meant to give us a big head, but rather a burning heart. We remember Jesus opening up the Old Testament scriptures to those two discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus, and afterwards their response was, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us on the road and as he opened up the scriptures? You know, if you have a piece of paper with nine zeros written on it, it still adds up to zero. But if you put a one in front of those nine zeros, it suddenly adds up to a billion. In the same way, we must put love at the front of everything we do in order for it to have spiritual value. The all-important number one for us as believers is love. A sad example of this is a loveless marriage. We've all seen these at some point, a husband and wife doing all the right things, going through all the motions, but the love is clearly gone. The same is true with churches and believers and their relationship to Jesus. As one pastor well said, the measure of a church isn't its reputation, its achievements, its programs, or even its doctrinal orthodoxy, it is love. In verse 5, then, Jesus gives a remedy for restoration to a first love relationship with Jesus. And if this is something that you're in need of, then please pay close attention to what Christ said. First off, remember. Remember how overjoyed you were when you were first saved in the same way with your spouse. Remember when you first fell in love? Remember how thrilled and excited you were? So whether it's our marriage relationship with our spouse or our relationship with Christ, the answer is the same. Remember your first love. Having been a pastor doing pastoral ministry for many years, I can tell you that I love to teach God's Word. I love to prepare Bible studies. I love to encourage God's people and to pray for them. I love serving in the church. But my first love is and must always be Jesus. In the same way, I love my wife and I love our children. I love our family home, but my first love is and must always be Jesus. The next thing Jesus calls them to do is to repent or to change directions. If we've been backsliding or growing spiritually cold, we must confess it to the Lord and then seek his forgiveness and change direction. Some backsliders are out in the world and away from the church, and they're pretty obvious to us, but you know there are also backsliders within the church, just like those in Ephesus, where the outward works are there, but the inward passion is dying. In the early 1990s, the pastor of a church in Watford, England, sensed that the congregation was becoming apathetic, and it had become painfully apparent during the time of worship. So in a bold move, that pastor had the sound system turned off and he put the worship team on break. Then the pastor told his congregation that they were either going to worship Jesus from their hearts or not worship him at all. Slowly, awkwardly, worship was only a cappella, and then eventually it turned into heartfelt praise and worship. Eventually, the sound system returned, the worship team was brought back into the Sunday services, but now there was a renewed passion for worshiping Christ. Soon after that experience, worship leader and songwriter Matt Redman, who was part of that church, sat down in his bedroom and wrote the song, The Heart of Worship, and it was inspired by that experience. It was simply his response to what the Lord had done inside his church. The main chorus of that worship song, I think most of you know it, but it includes these lyrics. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it, when it's all about you, It's all about you, Jesus. Finally then, the Lord calls us to return or to repeat the first works. Get back to the way things were with the Lord before it's too late. Get back to doing the right things in the right way and for the right reasons. If you're Martha in the kitchen, staying busy with other things, get back into the living room with Mary and spend time with Jesus. When Peter had denied the Lord and Jesus restored him, Uh, Christ asked Peter one question, and he asked it three times, Do you love me? As Vance Havner once said, the church today has no greater need than to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Think about the prodigal son. After leaving home and sinning against his father, he suddenly came to his spiritual senses. Now think about what he did to get right with his father. First off, he remembered, and he thought back to how good things were back at home. He remembered how good his father had been to him. Secondly, he repented. He confessed his sin against God and against his father for trashing the family name. Thirdly, he returned to the first works of loving his father by returning home to his father. In verse 7, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, and that applies to you and me. Just because a person has ears doesn't mean that they're listening Case in point, when your children are outside playing and you call them in for dinner, good luck with that. Jesus finishes his letter to the Ephesians with a word of comfort. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This simply refers to heaven, and the tree of life represents eternal life. As we close, I'd like to highlight the term Jesus uses here, overcomer. He uses that word 17 times in Revelation. Essentially, it's just describing a genuine believer. The overcomer or genuine believer will enjoy eternal life in heaven with Jesus. It's used again in Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna, which we'll look at in our next podcast. And the overcomer or genuine believer is promised that they will not be harmed by the second death, which is eternal punishment for the unsaved. And so thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from eternal death unto eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.